What a hack. There's no point That's in Spielberg. That. <laughs> exactly. He is a hack. He's no David Lean, that's for sure. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films that work. This week, we're taking a look at a true classic, The Bridge on the River Kwai. We're taking a look at that with the theme of honor. And to do that, I have a return guest. Welcome back, Andrew from the AB Film Review. Hello. Thank you very much. I appreciate being back, um, especially for a... It is a true classic. It's a film that... I mean, we'll touch on it a bit more, but it's the first time watch for me, and uh, I'm glad that you chose this film because um, I don't know if I'd ever voluntarily sit down to watch this film. So being requested to discuss it on on a show, on a podcast, I was like, yep, that gives me a great reason to watch it. So I'm glad that I, I did. And I must say as well, sorry to go on too long, but uh, for anybody who listens to episodes and are like, uh, you know, they, they they look at the runtime of Bridge on the River Choir and they're like, it's two hours and forty five minutes. I don't I don't have enough life left to live to watch that. Please watch it. I highly recommend it. And then come back and listen to this episode. So, yeah, yeah. So just a, <laughs> just a quick peek behind the curtain on how uh, these episodes are planned. Uh, they're not very well planned. Let me just put it that way. Uh, I knew I wanted to watch Hacksaw Ridge, which is the movie we're pairing that this with this week uh and i knew it was about you know kind of difficult decisions during during war and maybe a little bit about pacifism so i just looked up you know online uh movies about moral decisions during war and this was the first thing that came up and i thought i haven't seen that and immediately planned it uh and then contacted andrew like hey you want to do this and then looked at the (laughs) runtime and i was like what have i done and this is the second time i've done this to a member of AB Film Review. It's the same thing with The Patriot. Had no idea that movie was two and a half hours long. Like, I was like, it's a Mel Gibson movie about the Revolutionary War. How long could it be? Oh, don't ask that question, Dave. So, that's, and it is, you know, uh, a movie that's seen as a classic that I had never seen. So, I was like, okay, here's my here's my excuse to watch this movie. So, I'm kind of in, in the same boat as you. Uh, but before yeah. we get to the movie, uh, why don't you first uh, tell people a little bit about your podcast or podcasts and uh, where they can find them online. Um, so, yeah, if you haven't listened to episodes that I've done before, uh, so I do two shows, AB Film Review and The Last New Wave. AB Film Review is done with my wife, Bernadette, and it's sort of a fortnightly film review podcast. Um, basically, we just discuss the films that we've discussed, seen in the last two weeks, mostly new films. Uh, and The Last New Wave is an Australian film review podcast where we talk about old Australian films as well as new Australian films and sometimes do interviews as well. In fact, uh, the month of November, which uh, this episode will be coming out in, uh, there will be two episodes featuring yourself um, discussing both The Castle oh, and... Oh, they do finally come out, do they? <laughs> they do finally come out. Six yeah, months the later. Castle and Dark City. <laughs> We record those just the other day. Oh, yeah, and- very recently. 
and they'll be coming out in November. So yeah, head nice. over there and give them a listen. Yeah, nice. This is the first time hearing of it too, so that's that's good news. <laughs> All right. Uh, so uh, before I talk about the psychology of honor, um, are there a couple movie recommendations you have for us connected to either the movie or the theme? Well, yeah, I was thinking about it, and you know, it's a bit like Hacksaw Ridge in the sense that there aren't too many films that actually similar that deal with the 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 topic within that uh very well and so the two films that i could think of and you know it's ideal as well because i think there's a new criterion sale coming up sometime in november and both of these films in the criterion collection um so specifically dealing with the the topic of the two sort of leads in uh bridge on the river choir uh is merry christmas mr lawrence which stars david bowie and it's a really fantastic film uh not an easy film to watch but it's about the relationship of two opposing sides coming together to essentially become friends in a way um for want of a better term and then the film that i thought talked about honor really well and is certainly a film from the same sort of era as bridge on the river choir is the great the life and death of colonel blimp uh which is a pal and pressburger film and it's about uh somebody who has gone through essentially two wars in a way and their life and dealing with the honor of uh representing great britain so yeah it's a they're both fantastic films both very long as well so you know there you go yeah the the life and death of colonel blimp i uh i picked up at a criterion sale and still have not watched it total blind <laughs> buy so maybe this will maybe this will give me the push i need to finally watch that yeah. movie but let's see <laughs> all right so thank you for those recommendations uh we're gonna take a little break and then i will talk about honor and then we'll bring andrew back in to talk about the bridge on the river kwai Greetings, podcast listeners. My name is Peter, the host of Hydrate Level 4. On my show, I invite guests to come on and we review movies from our childhood and see if they still hold up. I've reviewed movies such as Mrs. Doubtfire, True Romance, Real Genius, The Mighty Ducks Trilogy, and even serious movies like A Time to Kill. We have a lot of fun and reflect back on the year and talk about even the music and other movies that came out around the time of that particular movie's release. So find me weekly at followingfilms.com on the Following Films Podcast Network. All right, so it's time for the psychological section. So today we're talking about honor. So this is just kind of an abstract concept, and it includes this perceived quality of being worthy and respectable, and it affects both uh, a self-evaluation, like the evaluation of ourself, and our social standing within our particular culture or corporate body. And this can include families, schools, uh, countries, kind of any group that you're a part of. Individuals are tend to be assigned worth and stature based on kind of the combination of their actions with a code of honor. So if it matches up with that code of honor, then you're thought of with high stature. And if it doesn't, low stature. And this is the code of honor within that smaller group, like a company or a family, and the moral code of the society at large. Dr. Samuel Johnson uh, wrote in a dictionary of the English language uh, published in the mid-1700s, and he defined honor as having several components, the first of which is the nobility of the soul, magnanimity, and a scorn of meanness. So this comes from this kind of perceived um, virtuous conduct and personal integrity. 
of the person endowed with it. But he also defined honor in relationship to fame and reputation, and also to privileges of rank or birth, and the respect which puts an individual socially and determines his right to precedence. So this stuff is all kind of inborn. So this sort of honor is not a function of moral or ethical or any other kind of excellence, but just a consequence of power and privilege. So with respect to sexuality, honor has usually been associated with chastity or virginity, or in the case of married people, fidelity. Some people have argued that honor should should be seen more as a set of possible actions rather than as a code. Let's look at it in a social context. So as a code of behavior, it really defines what we are supposed to do within a social group. Uh, Margaret Visser observed that in honor-based societies, a person is what he or she is in the eyes of other people. The kind of internal process doesn't really matter. It's what can be seen. And that kind of flies in the face of, I think, what we think of as honor as this kind of internal code of ethics. A code of honor um, differs from things like legal codes um, that are also socially defined, that honor remains implicit rather than explicit or objectified. So it's not something that you can, even though it's called a code of honor, it's not something you can necessarily write down. Like these are all the rules you have to obey to be an honorable person. It's things that are just kind of understood. And you can distinguish honor from something like dignity, um, which was assessed as measured against an individual's conscience rather than the judgment of a community. So dignity is the internal process. Honor is the external one. If you go way back to like the early medieval periods, uh, a lord or a lady's honor was the group of manors or lands that they held. So this word was first used indic- indicating like an estate uh, and it gave the bigger the estate, the more the estates the person had, the more status and dignity and honor they had. So when people would say on my honor, it's not just saying like on my internal honor, like this is this is something I hold dear. But literally, like everything I say after on my honor, I would put all of my property up against that. But the concept of honor kind of declined in importance uh, leading into kind of modern times. It's really been replaced in a lot of ways by conscience. Um, so in the individual context and the rule of law, conscience has really kind of taken over socially. Uh, there's some popular stereotypes that would have it surviving in more tradition-bound cultures, like Italian, Polish, Persian, uh, Arab, or Old South cultures. Feudal or agrarian societies, which tend to focus on land use and ownership, may tend to honor more uh, than industrial societies do. Now, an emphasis on the importance of honor is not completely gone. There are some institutions where it shows up a lot, which is, of course, uh, like the military and an or- any organization with like kind of a military bent, um, such as like scouting organizations. Now, honor in the case we mentioned honor and sexuality, um, and we talked about fidelity and, vir- and virginity, preservation of honor equates just kind of to the maintenance of virginity of single people and monogamy of the remainder of the population. Now, there's further conceptions of this type of honor uh, between many different cultures. There's even some pretty awful stuff that has been in the news in the last couple of years about honor killings of mostly female members of one's own family as justified if the individuals have, quote unquote, defiled the family honor. And this could be marrying against the family's wishes or having sex out of wedlock or even in some of the worst cases by becoming the victims of rape. They were blamed for this and it defiled the family's honor. So these usually young women were killed. 
West and Western observers like me, as you can hear the tone of my voice, we see these killings as a way of men using the culture of honor to really just control female sexuality. Like, I don't like what you did. Um, so, and now uh, I'm bound, quote unquote, bound by honor to kill you. I mean, it's a little, it's a little way over the top. And in these patriarchal societies, it can get pretty ugly and pretty horrible. Okay. In general, if you look at kind of the history of honor and how we studied it, we usually contrast two different things. And that, that is, um, cultures of honor and cultures of law. A culture of law has a body of laws, which everyone has to obey and you get punished if you don't. What it requires is a society with structures um, that will enact and enforce these law, whether you talk about prisons or police or courts, whatever it may be. This culture of law incorporates two things, like this unwritten social contract, this implicit honor, right, that we talked about earlier. And members of society implicitly agree to give up some aspects of their freedom to defend themselves and retaliate for injuries on the understanding that those people who injured them will be punished by society at large. And if you look at, uh, if you look at cultures of honor, historians have especially looked close, historians have especially looked close at the American South. So according to researchers, cultures of honor, you really show up when you have three conditions. One, a scarcity of resources. Two, a situation in which the benefit of theft and crime outweighs the risks. And three, a lack of sufficient law enforcement, such as in areas that are geographically remote, um, or don't have a large police presence. Throughout history, cultures of honor have have existed in places where the herding of animals dominates the economy. In this situation, the geography is usually extensive. It's widespread. And since the soil cannot support extensive sustained farming, and this brings us to large populations, the benefit of stealing these animals from other herds is high because it's the main form of wealth and there's no law enforcement or rule of law there. However, Cultures of honor can also appear in places like modern inner cities. The three conditions all exist here. We have poverty, um, we have crime and theft being worth it compared to the alternatives, and law enforcement is lax and or corrupt. Once a culture of honor exists within a society, the people within there find it difficult to make the transition to a culture of law. Basically what it requires is that people become willing to back down and not retaliate when they've been used to retaliating their whole lives. And from the viewpoint of the culture of honor, this feeling of humiliation when you do restrain yourself um, from retaliating, you have to deal with that and it'll make you seem maybe weak to other people within that culture. Honor has also been a big cause of war. And of course, the movie we're talking about is uh, does have to do with war. Honor wasn't necessarily the cause of that. That can certainly be argued, but not within uh, the context of this film, but the people in it are fighting that and and definitely honor plays a big part. So if we look at the War of 1812, um, a historian named Norman Richard, um emphasized the central importance of honor as a cause of this War of 1812, where the United States basically launched in against Britain despite uh, despite much more powerful naval and military strength. So Americans of kind of uh, across the aisle, no matter what side you were on at that point, they saw the need to uphold this national honor and to reject this treatment of the U.S. by Britain as a third class non-entity. And if you kind of jump forward in the future to how we are now, I mean, I think we can see we have taken the place of Great Britain in a lot of these conflicts is that we have ended up treating these countries like uh, like third world or uh, emerging world nations and people don't take very kindly to that as we didn't in 1812. So Americans were constantly talking about we need to have force in response to this. 
So the quest for honor was a big cause of this war in the sense that a lot of Americans who weren't involved in like things like mercantile interest or threatened by Indian attack all of a sudden were endorsing this preservation of national honor and being involved. There's actually one quote that says, National honor, the reputation of Republican government, and the continuing supremacy of the Republican Party had seemed to be at stake. National honor had now been satisfied. This is from historian Lance Banning. Americans celebrated the end of the struggle with a brilliant burst of, of national pride. And this is a war that you can be argued we shouldn't have had anything to do with. But the British showed a, a fair amount of respect for American honor. Some of the strongest praise for America and the swiftest recognition of what the younger public had achieved for American honor, prestige, and power ended up coming from the British Navy. And never again did Britain engage in this kind of harassment of American uh, maritime interests that led to the War of 1812. So, you know, for whatever that's worth, that actually seemed to work out for the U.S., at least in their relationship with Britain. And there's actually a study on United States presidents and those raised in honor cultures, especially in the South. That's usually where most of them would come from if they were born in the United States, uh, which you have to be to be a U.S. president. There's a 2016 study that suggests that honor culture increases the risk of war. They found that interstate conflicts under Southern presidents are shown to be twice as likely to involve use of force, last on average twice as long, and are three times more likely to end in victory for the United States than disputes under non-Southern presidents. Other characteristics of Southern presidencies do not seem to be able to account for this pattern of results. So because, you know, if you're in this honor-bound culture, you're much more likely to retaliate and to use force if you are, if you become the most powerful man, the most powerful person in the world, then all of a sudden you have the power to kind of either instigate or finish these fights and you're more likely to do it if you're from an honor-bound culture. All right, so that's it for our psychological section. We'll take a break and then bring Andrew back to talk about The Bridge on the River Kwai. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. <laughs> Didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. What's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back. We're back to talk about the movie. So uh, Andrew and I both mentioned this is a first-time watch for me, uh, for us. Uh, we Neither of us had seen this, and it is one of the, I mean, it won, like, every Oscar that year. It is seen as, like, this classic. And, you know, I always worry going into movies like this that have such 
such a big reputation where you people are like, mm. oh, this is one of the best movies ever made, one of the best movies about war ever made. Like this is best picture. It's got you know, it's very highly rated by critics and by audiences, and you're kind of like, okay, I hope this is good. And you try to go in blind, you try to go in without these expectations. But with a movie like this, it's kind of impossible. It's like the it's like the first time you watch like Citizen Kane or The Godfather. Like you can't go in and not have expectations. So my expectations mm. were were pretty high going in. Uh, but I really feel like this movie met those expectations. I was really impressed with this movie. I think I think there are there are probably moments for modern audiences that might be a little slow and a little bit like, oh, what's going on here? Can we get moving? Because it is it's made in a different time. I mean, it's made, mm. you know, I mean, this was made three years after my mother was was born. I mean, this is this is a different era for sure. Uh, but this movie really impressed me. What was your uh, your experience of watching this for the first time like? I mean, I have seen uh, a lot of David Lean's work. He is a great director, and there's a reason why mm-hmm. directors nowadays still try and imitate him. And, you know, it takes watching a film like Bridge on the River Kwai, you know, as a great understanding of how he, how great a director he is, but also uh, how difficult it is to actually, you know, achieve what he manages to do here. Especially in 1957. Like, it's crazy what he achieved here. Yeah. Exactly. And, you know, yes, definitely there are, there is that expectation of coming down, sitting with a great film. And, but, you know, given my previous experiences with David Lean, I I knew I was in safe hands. And this really is a stunning film. It's a, it is a powerful film. It's beautiful to watch. And, you know, full disclosure as well. So given how long this particular film is, I, I had to watch it over a couple of viewings. And yep. so <laughs> I watched an hour uh, the other night and then I watched uh, 45 minutes actually on my phone on a train. And I'm sorry if you've just lost a bunch of listeners <laughs> like, ah, how dare this man watch Bridge on the River Quiet. Hey, we're busy people. You got to you gotta watch where you can. <laughs> exactly. But the thing is, is that, it works so well on, you know, on any format and it looks stunning on any format as well. And, you know, I know that David Lean back when he was making this in the 1950s thought one day somebody will be watching this on a five inch screen. <laughs> I don't want this to look good. And uh, it does. And, you know, and then I watched the rest at home. And, and the thing is, is that, yeah, it's just it, it manages to to actually work quite well with those long drawn out sequences that you know, when you're watching them are like, okay, this seems a bit superfluous in mm-hmm. the sense of why are they running around in the, the beach and stuff like that. But then it makes sense later on. And, and that's a, that's right. a, you know, proof of a great director in that he's able to, yeah, able to take his time to tell a story. Yeah, so, absolutely. So let's talk about the direction. So this is actually another area where I felt like it had a lot to live up to because I think David Lean made one of the best movies ever made. I mean, he made Lawrence of Arabia. Like anyone who's listens, who listens to the show knows that for me, Vertigo and Lawrence of Arabia are like 1A and 1B for me as far as the best mm. films ever created. So this is kind of the level of expectation that I'm, <laughs> I mean, I love Alec Guinness uh, as an actor, like both as a comedic and a dramatic actor. 
actor. Uh, of course, sadly, many people probably only know that name from from Star Wars. But you know, he did a couple other movies, so you might want to might want to check those out too. <laughs> just just a few, just <laughs> not a few. just a new hope. <laughs> Uh, so definitely already, like we talked about expectations being sky high, like that, the fact that David Lean directed it certainly didn't, didn't help that. Uh, but mm. again, like I feel like it lived, he lived up to it. I think just like, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, I think this film really, it really benefits from on location shooting. The fact that they shot mm. this in a jungle, that they just went out in it instead of trying to build this on a sound stage somewhere, just like in Lawrence of Arabia, they just went out to the desert and went like, yeah, we're going to shoot yeah. here. We could only do one shot a day because we'll see footprints in the, in the desert, but we're going to, we're going to do this. And it, it must have been like, a pretty a pretty difficult shoot for everybody like we're just gonna live mm. in the jungle for a couple months and get used to it and i think that really helped out a lot oh, i definitely agree and you know one of the things i think that my, my personal favorite david lean film is brief encounter which is mm. on paper it's a small film you know it's just a it's a, a romance story in a way but the thing is is that he manages to tell such a small story and so intimately and and yet it still feels like it's such a vast, broad, you know, big picture film as well. And what he manages to do with Bridge on the River Choir is he manages to pair those small scenes of, you know, just two people talking in a room and yet, com- you know, combines it with shots of, you know, vast, huge shots of uh, the jungle and and especially the, you know, one of my favorite scenes, uh, you know, there's so many favorite scenes in this film, but one of my favorite ones is early on when all the uh, soldiers are standing in, in a line and there's this wonderful shot of them all just standing there and listening to the, the Japanese soldiers talk to them. And it's just, yeah, it's it's a powerful thing, but there is still that intimacy there. And that is the the testament of a great director in that he's able to make the the grand feel small but mm. the small feel grand you know that's so, yeah. that's a great point and i think that that goes through a lot of david lean's work i think you know it it may be derivative to say this but i think that almost any director can make a a film on a big scale that doesn't mm. make that doesn't make it good that just makes it big uh the thing about these movies is they are big and yet you care about the people who are involved in it. There's nobody, even in this film, where it would be very easy to make a stereotypical bad guy. A stereotypical bad guy doesn't exist in, in David Lean's films. There's nobody, there's not no. like this sadistic madman who's just out to hurt people. Like, if you could make this movie about the villain, and it would still be an interesting story. You know, so I think mm. he really does do a good job of making you care about these people. The other choice I really like, since you brought up the the kind of marching and standing in line, I love that at the beginning of this movie, you don't really know what's going on. They mm. don't they don't like they don't have like a little title card saying like this is this is what's happening. This is where we are. You have to figure it out. Like I'm watching the beginning I'm watching with my wife and she's barely watching, you know, she's like on her phone. Like, she's like, I don't know why you're watching this, whatever. Like this yeah. is like an old movie. And, and she's like, why are they whistling? Like, why are, why aren't their shoes like together? What is wrong? And then you figure out about 10 minutes later, like what's actually going on through context yeah. of the film, you know, like they don't lead you into it. And I love that. I love that it gives respect to his audience and thinks like they will figure this out based on the script, I don't need to kind of lead the horse to water here. And I really like that. Mm, I, I agree. And that is, that is, 
you know you're in safe hands when he's able to put you into a, a pretty traumatic situation straight away and yet you you get an understanding of what's going on you get an understanding of the gravity of the situation and without as you're saying without a title card to say hey these guys got captured now they're in this camp and they're going to build this bridge and fix this train <laughs> rail and stuff and it's like you know which you know an, an unconfident that's i know that's not a word but um you know a director who, who lacks confidence yes that's right yeah that's it english uh <laughs> you know <laughs> a director who lacks confidence would put something in there you know, or a, you know, I'm thinking only because it's it's my job to bring up War of the Worlds on this show every oh, so often. Um, but crutches. I recently watched it for, <laughs> for a, a War Machine vs. War Horse episode. But, I hate you know, that that Spielberg, man is enabling you. I hate that Mike is enabling you to watch this again. <laughs> Jesus. Um, but, but, you know, Spielberg implements Morgan Freeman's narration at the beginning for no particular reason. And... Not saying that Spielberg's not confident, but what a hack. there's no point. That's Spielberg. In that. Exactly. He is a hack. He's no David Lean, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, and as I think about the direction, like so much is I think sometimes great direction is not necessarily showy direction. So sometimes there's not that much to talk about other than he's really confident and really capable. And you never – like you said, you feel like you're in good hands for the entire film. Like it, he feels very sure of himself. But there's two shots in this film that that really resonated with me. And there's a shot where they're basically threatening to shoot these guys if they don't work. And there's basically a, fi mm. a firing line shut up. Uh, set up and he makes a decision to place the camera basically on the outside shoulder on the right shoulder of the gunman instead of mm. putting the camera on these frightened eyes of these soldiers or the stoic eyes of these soldiers who are about to be shot and i thought that was a great choice because it, it really it really puts you in this perspective of actions have consequences like this is this is what soldiers are asked to do all the time like it would be really simple to just be like isn't this awful let's let's zoom in on the faces but instead like look what's about to happen it gives you this perspective mm. of what's going to happen in the future uh right away if if this trigger is pulled they really and it's a very different camera angle from the rest of the film it definitely stood out but in a good way i think yeah and speaking of camera angles and i'm sure this goes into production design but at near the end of the film, when Alec Guinness's uh, Colonel Nicholson is standing there and congratulating his his men for building such a great bridge and everything, I I absolutely love the shot of that because mm. you have you have Nicholson standing there and then the men have constructed this miniature bridge behind him, which of course has got the fire underneath, and he doesn't know that of course his bridge is about to be blown up. And then on the very left hand side, you have uh, in the background, the you know the little hut that he was kept in because he he didn't follow orders and he didn't allow his officers to actually work, and it's it's a stunning shot because it shows how far he's come and how far right. he's you know he's progressed as an individual because he is happy to stand there and and celebrate the work that he's done even though it is work that supports the Japanese in a sense and. Right. You know, I find this really interesting because it really feeds into your theme here. And, you know, I'm jumping ahead, but it it feeds into that theme so well because it's about taking honor in your own work. And it, it's a stunning, stunning shot. And it resonates throughout the whole entire film as well, especially with each different character, too. Like each different character has their own, you know, thread that makes sense. The, the right. medical officer, the American 
the you know Colonel Saito, for example, they all make sense. And again, that goes back to what a great director David Lean is that you feel intimate with every single one of them. You understand what's going on without any of them ever saying. I'm a medical officer. I like to care after these guys and I want to make sure that they're, <laughs> you know, all good and stuff. You know, it's it's powerful. It's just stunning. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's interesting that you brought up that particular shot because the, sh- the other shot I was thinking of was when uh, when Nicholson is kind of released from this, this torture, essentially. He's mm-hmm. being put in, you know, solitary confinement in a tiny little box. And the fact that they shoot it kind of from outside and you see him, like just the way his body is posed, where it's kind of mm-hmm. curled up, almost fetal, but like really, really uncomfortable. And you really feel that. And you also feel that from kind of the makeup they use where he was kind of dirty and dingy coming out. But I love that shot and I love that moment. And again, you know, you bring up the theme and this really shows like he is willing to go through a lot to keep his honor intact. Like that's something that really drives him. And I think that scene really hammers that home pretty early in the film. All right. uh, So let's talk about the acting. So, of course, we have to talk about Alec Guinness. Um, because again, another, another person who I love as an actor and I thought like, you've got a lot to live up to here. Cause I've, I don't think I've seen a bad Alec Guinness performance. Um, and it's interesting because of course the first thing I saw him in was A New Hope and Lawrence of Arabia, but there's a movie that I'm sure you haven't seen this because no one's fucking seen this movie. <laughs> so they don't make it on Blu-ray. It's only on DVD. There is a, there is a comedy called Murder by Death. Um, which is basically a take on all these kind of old detective stories. It's like Clue before Clue existed. It's like as a murder takes place in a house, there's a Charlie Chan character, there's a there's a Sam Spade character, um, and Alec Guinness is in that movie too, and he's brilliant comedically. So kind of everything I've seen him in, he's just fucking fantastic. So it's like mm. this was one of the reasons I was really excited to watch this movie is because he is in a lead role. And my God, did he not disappoint. Like he is – phenomenal and such a layered character he's created here i think at the beginning of the film you're like oh this is just a simple like military character he stands his ground he's never going to going to give an inch and that is a part of his character but also part of his character is how much he cares about the people serving under him and even Mm. if he has to be tough about it like there's a whole sequence where they've started to build the bridge under kind of japanese orders and it's you know, of course, it's a American slash British British film, so it's going to be like, well, they don't really know how to build a bridge. These these silly <laughs> Japanese, so they're figuring out a better way to do it. And he's noticing his men like need structure and need order, or they don't, or they you know end up doing things they shouldn't and performing poorly. And I I really feel like he is instituting order because he knows they need some sense of normalcy in this situation that could not be less normal. Like they are, they're prisoners mm. of war. Like there's nothing good going on here. People are dying every day. Their, you know, lead commander is being, you know, beaten in front of a firing line. Like it's, it's a bad situation. So I think most of what he does in this movie is either for honor or for, to, or to protect the people that work under him. Mm. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, Alec Guinness is a great, great actor. And, I think it's really interesting as well. I, I wasn't entirely aware of this until I watched this film, did a bit of research, but he did serve in the Second World War. And mm-hmm. I think he, from what I understand, he, he commanded a landing craft at the Allied invasion of Sicily, is what Wikipedia tells me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so he's not only is a great actor, you know, he has been a great actor leading up to this film, uh, right. you know, in his Shakespeare films and stuff like that. And right. I think... 
uh, he previously did some other David Lean films too. Um, but then that particular, his life experiences inform his performance as well. And right. I think the thing is, is that him being a British actor, he's, he's you know, proper, he's very um, proud of his work. And, and that very, very much so carries through to his performance here. And, you know, while I haven't seen all of his performances, um, I would probably put this right at the top there. It is a stunning, stunning performance. And, you know, it, it adds a bit more relevance to how he was disappointed in having to do Star Wars in a sense, like mm-hmm. as the ageing actor in a way. Um, you know, obviously Star Wars is a good film, but he's, you know, he it's a bit of a slap in the face to him to have to do this you know, this space film in a way and say the dialogue there, especially when he's come from doing Shakespeare and come from doing uh, such noble war films like this and, you know, gives a really, really stunning performance. Um, But for me, though, I I do think that actually the best performance here is that of Colonel Saito. It's uh, pretty incredible. Hayakawa, yeah. He's just got some of the most heartbreaking scenes in this film. Like, you know, it's just... If there's somebody who who really explains what the theme is, you know, about honor. Absolutely. It is Saito. He there's a there's a scene where he sits down after having a you know, having I think it's uh they've all sat down and, and talked to him about building this bridge and basically he's been worn down throughout this whole meeting of you know, with uh, Nicholson going, Can we get some tea and stuff like that? And and then Saito eventually says, you know, instead of, you know, saying yes, I will tell my men about this. It's um, the order is already given, and and stuff like that. And you can see he is a broken man. And then then there's a shot of him sitting there crying in in silence, and you know, in his in his room by himself. And it's it's a devastating thing. And I think the power of this film as well, and the power of the direction and the performances is that you know, you could almost flip this story over and, you know, focus on him as the Absolutely. core yep. character. And he suddenly becomes an, an honorable, you know, uh, losing hero in a sense. A bit the same with um, the two characters in Captain Phillips in that regard, um, where both sides of the film, they're both doing what they think is right. And yeah, it's really, really powerful. And both men obviously feed off them, you know, each other really, really well. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think given the time that this was made, it's pretty shocking that everything you said is true, that this, this movie doesn't, doesn't treat him as a, you know, paint by numbers villain, treats him as Mm. a real character and gives him some real depth. And also just the fact that this character was actually played by a Japanese actor in 1957 it's pretty yeah. crazy because that wasn't – I mean if you look at David Lean's other work, he certainly wasn't doing that with uh, Middle Eastern people when he was doing Lawrence of Arabia. He just put <laughs> Alec Guinness and painted him brown and said go to work. So you know, I actually looked it up because I kind of – as I watched this, I assumed this must be a, you know, a white actor uh, playing this role given the time and given the politics yeah. of the time uh, and was pretty surprised and pretty happy to see like, no, this is – this is actually a Japanese actor doing this role and playing it like phenomenally well. Like I was, I was really, I think you're right. I think, although I love Alec Guinness and I always will, I think this movie really hinges 
on the performance of Saito. Like I think if mm. if you hate Saito or you don't care about him, I don't think this movie works. I think it's it's your standard uh anti-war film. Like there's there's not much yeah. to it. But to make to make this character have so much depth, I think really pushes the movie to another level and his performance is really what does it. Yeah, and especially with the, you know, the gung-ho nature of these sorts of films, you know, especially post-World War II, there's less of a critique of that particular war. Uh, there's more of a, you know, celebration of the, the soldiers, celebration of men. And while there is that element here, especially with some of the, the music scenes and stuff like that, there is almost a, you know, there's a, a sadness to it as well because the music, especially the whistling scenes, mm. are there to essentially, you know, build these men up and, and right. get them through the difficult situation they're in. But on the flip side, you can also see it as being a, you know, a cheery kind of like, yeah, we're going to conquer these Japanese soldiers in, in that regard. And, you know, especially when I guess you compare it to I'm, – I'm, struggling to to think of the top of my head but you've got films like the dirty dozen and stuff like mm. that where it's mm-hmm. like yeah we're we're prisoners but hey you know we won't let them get us down and here you definitely see people who are suffering and, right. and having a very difficult situation especially you know when early on there there's talk of uh an escape and you know nicholson's first response is no don't be stupid don't try and escape because you'll get yourself killed and you're going to also hurt the rest of the people as well because right. if you do get yourself killed, they're going to come and punish us for, you know, trying to escape and especially mm-hmm. your your superior officers for not controlling your your people. And that, of course, is something that does happen. And right. so it's really interesting in that regard that there's no, you know, there's no bravado, there's no, you know, conquering and cheering and right i mean this isn't this isn't the dirty dozen this isn't the great escape this isn't just like oh let's wait for the next action sequence this is going to be fun it's not (laughs) it's not that kind of movie a lot of the movie focuses on order and hard work and difficult conditions and what that does to people who are in those situations and i think it's i think you know i i like i own and like the dirty dozen the great escape uh but i don't i think i think that kind of fun aspect and that rah-rah aspect is and the fact that it's missing here i think is one of the things that makes this movie great and sets it Mm. apart is that it's not a fantasy it's not like let's live through these guys like no one sets out to go to the movies like you know what i'd really like to to feel is what it's like to build a bridge like that's not that's not (laughs) i get the like let's make this great escape you know let's fire these guns let's do that this is not fantasy fulfillment at all it's it's in a lot of ways, especially probably in the fifties. This is this is a message film. This is something that yeah. has something to say. It's not just escapism. So, yeah, exactly. But that's the thing as well. You know, as you're saying, nobody sits down to watch a film and go, "I want to watch somebody build a bridge." But if you have a great enough director and great enough writer and great enough cast, then you are impelled. You know, you feel compelled to sit down and. I really want them, you know, really want to see them, you know, make this bridge and and finish this bridge, even if you know that it's not for the right reasons. And that's a, you know, it is sad that makes that it makes that final sequence really bittersweet as well, because half of you is like you are feeling the pride that Nicholson feels because he's managed to to help create this bridge. He's managed to help, you know, get his men 
through this difficult time by doing something that they can be proud of. And I think it's really powerful as well that one of the things that he says is, you know, in many years time, you'll think of this bridge and you'll feel proud and, and you'll think of, you know, once this war is done, you'll think of what you've been able to do for these people by being able to provide a bridge that connects two places that wasn't, that weren't connected before. But on the same side, you also feel exactly the same thing that um, Commander Shears and, and um, ex, you know, blow up this bridge field. And you feel excited by the fact that you've managed to thwart the Japanese soldiers. So, right. yeah, it, it, it's amazing to be able to feel those two feelings at once. And it's powerful, really, really, really powerful. Yeah, and you bring up feeling those two feelings at once. There's a there's a great shot in this film that probably should have been mentioned in the in the direction uh, section where uh, Alec Guinness is just kind of standing at the edge of the bridge and staring off, and you feel that pride. You feel like mm. that I I did this, we did this, and then he notices as the tide has lowered, he notices something wrong, kind of in the same moment. So you get both of those feelings kind of in one shot, which is a great. A great moment for David Lean to really to really hammer home what's going on on a on a wider scale than just like we built this bridge. But yeah, we built this bridge. But look, audience, look what's about to happen here, because we know more than Nicholson does at that moment. So I really like that 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 shot is in there. And it's a shot that could be kind of uh, cut or shortened, but I like that he takes his time there. I think it's an important mm. moment for Nicholson. So let's move to the to the script. Um, so I think the only weakness I really see in the script, and it, it's something that corrects itself pretty quickly, is, and I don't think that there's a way to fix this, when we switch from, like, the beginning of the film, it's all in this camp, and then all of a sudden, after the escape, it switches, you know, to this this gorgeous tropical island and, you know, our, our, our American being convinced to go back in. Right. And it's so jarring to be removed. And I think that that kind of says something good about how, like we talked about how intimate and how close it feels in that first 45 minutes to an hour when you're just in this camp. So when you're removed and like you're, you're on a beach and the guy's in a bathing suit and there's a beautiful woman next to him. And there, you know, it's like this fantasy for a half second. I was like, what am I watching? Like what, what just happened? Like it is really jarring for me as a viewer, but I think the movie corrects itself and you figure out why it's so jarring and, and what's about to happen next. But that's like the only negative I can see from the script at all. Yeah. I mean, if they, I I do agree there, especially because for me, there are two sort of negative points that I'd have to say is that because this kind of takes place over a, four-month period in a way, mm-hmm. it does feel quick that, you know, when we see Shears, he's uh, he's escaped from the, the camp and he's sailing away on this boat and he is, you know, he's parched. He's, you know, near death and looks terrible. And then the next shot that we see, he's frolicking on a beach with a woman. And, right. <laughs> you know, and part of me is kind of, I would have liked to have seen, him, you know, just a shot of him in a bed recovering or something like that. Right. Because you don't get a true gauge of, of time. For me, it just felt like I oh, was being picked up and had a bath and now he's got himself a woman. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and probably that's the only other criticism of this film is that, and it does happen a lot with the, the war films of this era, is that, you know, the women in this piece are really uh, not, yeah, not, not a lot, much. Not that. a lot of great roles for women <laughs> in Bridge on the River Kwai. That is, that is certainly a negative. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. especially how quick the uh, Japanese women fall in love with the, 
you know, yeah. the the people that they're carrying the the stuff for later on. But it's forgiving, you know, in the sense like it's such a minor element that. And it's also it's really also a product of the time. Like I, I exactly. think if you remade this film, which you shouldn't do, but if you remade this film now in 2016, you could. I don't think you could get away with that. Like that, there would be a bit of an uproar about about the female characters in this film. But it is a very male centric movie. Like you know, it's yeah. it's about guys trapped as POWs. You know, like yeah. if you just look at numbers, you know the. The idea that uh, women as POWs, there's a lot less. And especially, you know, in that particular war, you know, when women essentially, most women essentially Mm -hmm. weren't allowed in the armed services. So, uh, but yeah, I actually, actually could have done without the sequences with, with the, with the kind of, with the Asian women in here. Like it, it didn't really serve much purpose other than to be like, oh, isn't that great? They're falling in love with the, with the American and British soldiers. Like, I'm like, uh, and as like a viewer in 2016, (laughs) it's kind of like, oh, this is, this is a little eye roll worthy. And they honestly, the same thing with the, with the woman on the beach, the only purpose she really serves is she's a symbol of what he's having to leave behind again, where he just got out and now they're pulling him back in. Like I, I get, I get the symbolism there and what she represents, but Again, it's not if you took if you took that part out, the movie doesn't change. Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> if you take all the female parts out of this movie, nothing alters in the movie, which tells you how unimportant they made these female roles, which is a little unfortunate. Mm. Yeah, and you know, the that one shot of where she's walking along and all the men turn and and look at her and and <laughs> right. you know, and one of the guys says, you know, get back to work. Like that that scene serves no purpose whatsoever, but it's it is amusing and it's it is interesting as an artifact from its time as well, just to see how women represented in in certain films as well. At least they are there in some regards. Yeah, so, yeah. but but that aside, I think <laughs> that's, the, a, that's positive. <laughs> but that aside, I think the script is great. I think they do. Oh, yes. Once you have that that jarring moment where you leave the camp, I think it's it's really difficult to have competing plots. And to have them match up time wise and make it work and, you know, you don't spend too much time on plot A and not enough time on plot B. I think the balance here is really is really expertly done from a script level. Mm. Like there's there's just enough of the of the kind of B plot of these men coming to blow up the bridge and just enough of the A plot where you you feel everything that these characters are feeling and also feel this tension as 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 the film gets to his climax, because you know, I think you know as an audience, like, this is not going to end well. Like, you know, like you see Nicholson building up his men and you see them building this bridge at the same time. And you feel you feel that sense of pride with him. But all the while, you know that these men who are on the same side as Nicholson are coming to literally destroy and dismantle all that work that has been done. And you really at that point, it's a movie where you don't know who you're rooting for. Exactly. You yeah. don't know what you want to happen. I think and I think the end of the film, those final lines, that madness, madness, I think that really encapsulates how we feel throughout the last hour of this movie. You're just like, I don't even there's no happy ending here. Like there's Hmm. literally nothing could happen in this movie where I'd be like, oh, well, that ended well. Like, you know, it's not going to (laughs) happen. And 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 the script really brings that it ratchets that tension up. But not to a point of melodrama. There's never a point in this movie where I feel like, oh, well, this is getting ridiculous. And and that's saying something yeah. considering this movie ends with a dying man falling on a dynamite plunger 
with his last breath and blowing up this bridge. I mean, that is fucking dramatic, you know, but yet, yeah. but yet somehow it works. Like, I think as I watched the movie, I realized that I had seen this clip before, like in, you know, probably some AFI top hundred movies, you know, uh, montage of, of movie moments. And yet yeah. when I saw, and I remember seeing that in that montage and thinking like, well, that's fucking ridiculous. God, the fifties, what were they doing? Uh, but within, <laughs> Within the context of the film, it works so well, and it's really the only way the movie can end. Like, I love the fact mm. that essentially he realizes what he's done, the mistakes he's made, and he yeah. destroys his own work. Like, all those months yeah. of work that he and his men put into it, his body delivers the final blow to it, which is just a brilliant piece of writing, I think. Oh, it really is, and... You know, on the dialogue side of it as well, I think the discussions that Saito and Nicholson have together are some of the the most powerful moments in this film, and and really, I I think they're they're some of my favourite scenes as well. It's just the relationship that those two have. And there's not too many, but the dialogue works so well here, and it's just a, a really really powerful film. And unfortunately, I don't I didn't write any lines down, but there are so many really great lines in this film that just really reinforce the the nature of these two characters and and Mm -hmm. what they're aiming for as individuals as well and yeah i think that the ending is you know that that last half hour is just stunning stunning filmmaking as well because it pays off all those long sequences early on it pays off all the the time and the months that you've spent with those people just to watch those that final half hour of you know, the night before the bridge mm-hmm. blowing up and, you know, the big celebration of it actually being open and then, of course, the blowing up of the bridge. And, yeah, I mean, I'd seen that scene multiple times before because it's one of those, it's an Oscar clip scene, you know. It it's is, seen, yes. You know, you, you watch it alongside the, the you know, Rise of, Ride of the Valkyries in uh, Apocalypse Now and stuff like that. Right. It's, it's one of those kinds of scenes. But there's so much uh, tension and so much um, emotion and energy behind it that it's really powerful. And, you know, they all of the performers really, really sell it. Even uh, there's a Canadian uh, who kind of just appears at the end of the film, in a sense, um, Lieutenant Joyce, uh, played by Jeffrey Horn. And, you know, he's he just kind of appears as one of the guys that has to continue on with this uh, this story, in a sense. And he works so well as well because, again, going back to what I'm saying before about the, all the characters, you understand who they are as people. And we get maybe two minutes with him explaining who he is and why he wants to fight and why he wants to go on this this journey. And it works so well. You you understand his story and, and what who he is really, really well as well. Yeah, and he and plays a major right. role in the ending of this film. And like, Huge. You know, yeah. there's all these sequences of him like, you know, we're not sure if he can, you know, essentially if he can pull the trigger, if he can do what needs to be mm. done. And I, I love that that's included. I think that 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 bit makes the the B plot, as I called it earlier, something we care about and something where there's risk kind of throughout the film, which is not easy yeah. to do that quickly. Exactly. I agree. Yeah. All right. Uh, so let's talk about production value. We talked a little bit about it already, but I just think like, I, I would love to see, and I don't even know if this exists cause it's such an older movie, but just some like behind the scenes of how they set up these shots. Cause they're shooting in a damn jungle. Like it's not, <laughs> this is not built 
for cameras to access certain points. Like, I mean, that's that's the good thing if you build your own sets is you can build in ways to kind of wheel your cameras in and wheel them out and make it, you know, and make it work. But in this, you're just, you know, we're going to be in the elements, but you never you never feel like lean struggles inside the jungle. It never feels like, oh, we couldn't quite get that shot or this doesn't quite work. Like every shot looks carefully planned out and seems like he knew exactly what he was doing. And that's really impressive. And I think the fact that they shot in the jungle does give us that sense of intimacy and give us that sense of realness that we are really there with these men, because in a way we kind of are, because they're just shooting in the jungle. Mm. And, you know, it's bringing up apocalypse now as well. Um, I wonder if uh, how many times that um, Francis Ford Coppola watched this before <laughs> right. doing that film because it's you know it, this is this seemed like such an easy film to to kind of do even though there are scenes with the um, as the men are, are traipsing through the jungle they get uh, they get leeches on them and you know they're real leeches you can see them yep. moving and stuff like oh, that and horrifying. that's real blood <laughs> <laughs> and so you know there is there is a reality there. But but I think that it's, you know, visually, I think this is a, a stunning looking film. The cinematography by uh, Jack Hildyard is just wonderful. And, you know, in that period of time as well, you have a lot of, um, you know, they're, they're certainly trying to push the format of cinema in different ways, cinemascope and Panavision and all those kinds of things. And it works really well here because the that grand aspect of the jungle is captured wonderfully. And you certainly get a really a really great feeling that you're actually in there with them. And it's powerful that, as you're saying before, they didn't shoot on a set or anything like that, even for some of the scenes that, um, that occur at the, the hospital near the beach, you know, right. they, you'd think that they'd be in a set and there's the scenes where they're sitting down and they're talking about the plan and stuff. And you can see the beach out in the background. You can see the forest in the background as well. And that's, that just adds to the, the realism of it all as well. Yeah. The one thing that, and this is not a criticism of the film itself, it's more the fact of how far we've progressed as, um, you know, cleaning up old prints and stuff like mm. that. So I watched the Blu-ray version of this and it looks stunning. It looked really, really fantastic. But the disappointing aspect is that we've come so far in making these films look even better than they ever could on, on these particular formats that the day for night scenes don't really work so well. Mm -hmm. They're they're a little bit too noticeable. Um, But that's not a criticism of the film. You know, it still works, but it's just a little bit more heightened. And I do fear that, you know, modern audiences who who may not be as forgiving as they should be uh, coming to watch a film like this, if they come to those scenes and they're like, well, what's happened here? You know, they're obviously standing there in daytime. And so why is it just a little bit darker? So you know, and that's more of a criticism of modern audiences who laugh at old <laughs> films and stuff like that. You jerks, if you're one of them. Um, <laughs> but other than that, the production value is stunning. Yeah. yeah. And the, this, the music is great as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so let's talk about favorite scenes. Uh, any favorite scenes that we haven't gone over uh, for you? I mean, the whole entire film um, <laughs> is great. <laughs> like, how do you how do you? Honestly, when I was sitting down thinking about favorite scenes, um, it's so hard to actually pick out a favorite scene because there are so many great moments in this film. But for me, it really comes down to that last half hour. Like, yeah, I think as because it really is one whole scene in the the build up and all that. I Pretty think much, that it's yeah. just a 
a powerful film. And, you know, it's a testament as well that I think that if you if you cut that last half hour and just present it as somebody without the context of the first two hours of the film, they'd still get a great understanding of what's occurring and you know what the, the stakes are in this situation and, and all of that. And uh, it works so well. It's just a it's a powerful powerful scene and it's powerful because of what's come become before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just yeah. Stunning, stunning stuff. So it's hard to pick because it's such a great film. Yeah, I think the only scene that comes to mind that we haven't talked about, because we've, we've talked about kind of, you know, Nicholson being, you know, trapped in the box. We've talked about the, the final sequence. Uh, we've talked about the whistling like that. That stuff all really works and especially works in thinking back on the film, how after you realize kind of what's going on, you're like, oh, they're not only instituting order and honor again, but they're reminding them of home. They're reminding them of the things they used to do. It's the one thing propelling them forward mm. when they have no reason to move, you know, when they are prisoners of war. But the only scene we haven't mentioned is that first standoff between Nicholson and Saito, I think, is really powerful. And it sets oh, up yeah. everything you need to know about these two characters and why there is this war of wills between these two strong, honorable men. And it really sets up the entire film. In a in a two minute scene where you have Nicholson saying, like, these are the rules of war, these are what we should abide by, and then him essentially getting beaten for saying that, for for essentially for insulting Saito by bringing this beaten up when with he's with his, his own prisoner. rules as well. He gets yeah. slapped in the face with the Geneva Convention. That's yeah, like literally, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I, I love that moment and I think it I think it's a good moment, uh, even if the rest of the movie doesn't happen. But with the context of the rest of the film, like looking back on it, you're like, oh, that's everything. That moment yeah. is a microcosm of everything that's going to happen in this movie, which is not an easy thing to do from a script, a direction or an acting standpoint. So I really like that moment as I think back on the movie. I, I agree. And one of the things I think is really powerful about that moment as well is, you know, when Saito says, I didn't I didn't care about the rules. And, you know, that's the thing. And about war is that. Logically, if you're on the obviously you don't think you're the opposing side, you think you're the right. the good guys. Always. <laughs> but we're all the yeah. heroes of our own stories, right? That's <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> but you know, Saito would think that he you know, why would you why would you pay attention to the rules that your enemy is going by? Yeah. You know, even though the country that you live in or the side that you're fighting on may have signed off on the agreement decades ago. You know, the why would you why? Why would you do that? And you know, it's really powerful to see that and and it's terrifying in a sense as well, you know, given this is made in the nineteen fifties, it's talking I'm sure that things like this happened in you know, well, they did actually happen in World War Two. But, you know, you look at today's day and age and I'm thinking of the Australian government at the moment, not to go too political, but we have people in politics who are going you know why are we signed onto the human rights convention and stuff like that why why are we signed what we should probably get out of that and it's terrifying that you know things like that from the good side you know the if you think that you're on the good side those kinds of things are irrelevant and you throw them out and it's just yeah you you never as you're going to say before you never ever feel that Saito is a villain, and even though he is doing those terrible things, 
you do understand and you sympathize with him as well mm-hmm. that, you know, hey, if I was him, I would throw that Geneva Convention out too. But I unfortunately am not him. So it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about the theme really quickly. I think we've touched on it a lot already. I think it's pretty clear that this is an important theme. Uh, but I think, uh, of course, our theme is honor. And we talked about all these discussions between these two men of honor. Uh, between Saito and Nicholson. And I think that's what really kind of hammers the point home. And I think, I think honor is something we think of when we think of that word, we think of it positively, usually like, oh, this Mm. man has honor. He has principles, right? Uh, But I think there's a negative side to honor, too. I don't think it's, you know, and I think it's it's shown in this movie that sometimes honor gets in the way. Like if you look at everything that Nicholson did, the kind of murder he committed at the end of the film is due to honor. It's due to him sticking to his principles and, you know, attacking this man because he feels like his honor, what he's built is being attacked. And that leads to mm-hmm. a tragedy for him. So like honor in general, I think is a good thing, but like anything else, the only other theme I was thinking of when I thought of this movie is the idea of the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And both of these characters are very letter of the law guys. Like no matter what, we do this because it's the way we do it. For Saito, it's it's most likely because of because of his superiors and something is expected of him. And if he doesn't and if he doesn't get it done with these prisoners of war, then he will be punished and he may even be forced to take his own life. Uh, given mm. given the kind of culture of honor he's in. So I find that really interesting that there's this idea of honor as positive, but it leads both these men down a really dark path by the end of the film. I, I think it's really powerful as well, especially because, you know, when the film opens, you have two characters who, who live by their own code or live by the code that they're, they've been brought up in in their particular armies for their particular countries. You know, Nicholson and, and Saito there. But then we're also presented with the American as well, uh, Commander Shears, played by William Holden, who, you know, he escapes from the, the prison and we learn out his reasons for escaping later on as well because, you know, he obviously shouldn't have been there in the first place because he managed to steal a, uh, you know, a superior officer's clothes. and Not then so honourable. Not so honourable. Not so honourable. <laughs> no. And... You know, it's 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 fascinating that we get to see him grow into honor or come into honor as well, because his his last act is to essentially, you know, jump up and shout, kill them and run across in front of the Japanese soldiers to try and make sure that this bridge gets blown up. So immediately in that in that situation, honor is the last thing that he he gains in his life he right it, it's a powerful moment and it's really impressive to be able to see the the three sort of progressions that these characters of off their honor as you're saying honor can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing but it can be something that you can fall into and i think that with that character as well i think that it's just a, a powerful representation of it and i'm certain that's uh, one of the things that they were discussing when they were making this film because for me, this this film, you know, I was I was thinking about this film a lot, obviously, but also thinking of other films that deal with honor, and I really can't think of many that come off the top of my head that deal with the the subject of honor so well. Oh, you don't and, think like the Last Samurai? That's not. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, that film's gone out of my mind a long time ago. <laughs> All that I remember is drunk Billy Connolly and I was, yeah, no, that's it. <laughs> Fair enough. No, I think you're right. I think most films, most films don't deal with it well, or they at least don't d- deal with it uh, on a deep level. It's usually yeah. very simple. And frankly, in a lot of movies, pretty fucking racist where it's like, oh, these Japanese men have honor. So they won't, they won't budge. Like that's the kind of like, well, we'll just, we'll yeah. just attribute it to culture. But I like that these three men, all from different cultures, uh, all have to deal with honor in different ways. I like that that's kind of layered into the script. Yes, I agree. And, you know, certainly uh, one of the other films I was going to mention is something like Seven Samurai, which is all about honor. And it goes back to, you know, as you're saying, sometimes it can be, yeah, honor is certainly seen like an Eastern thing. Right. You know, I I live by the code, I live by the sword and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, it, it is certainly the way that it's depicted in, in film often is is pretty racist because it's something that, you know, I think that, as I'm saying, many people see it just as an Eastern thing. Right. And it's a bit offensive as well to, I guess, uh, American and English soldiers, too, in that, oh, they don't have honor. They live by a code. And, I, you know, they live by the flag and stuff like that. And, right. and they, they deal with patriotism more than, uh, you know, what it means to be a soldier and stuff like that. So I think that's a bit, uh, yeah. It, it can be a little bit offensive, and this gets it right on all all accounts as well. Even the Canadians get a positive, uh, you know, aspect. Even too, the so. Canadians, <laughs> so good of you. <laughs> all right. Uh, so the last thing to talk about here, and this will be a little odd to talk about because usually I ask people, "Are you excited to see the movie uh, that's coming up?" But you've already seen. Uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Uh, so, okay. like, I guess, like, a little bit of a spoiler alert. I wasn't going to ask. Well, I guess that's not true. I could ask you on for something you despise, but I tend to not do that. I don't like to be. I, I like to be the negative one, so I don't like to bring in people for movies they hate. Uh, but I'm really excited. Take that, Mike. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm really excited to see this movie actually, and I didn't think I would be when I first. I kind of heard about the movie, not seeing a trailer or anything, and it's like. You know, you hear the name Mel Gibson as a director, although he is a very capable and good director. I still have this immediate kind of revulsion to Mel Gibson after kind of everything that's happened in the past decade or so. But I don't think that even though I don't love all Mel Gibson's movies, I don't think he's made a bad one yet. I don't think he's directed a bad film. So, you know, I am looking forward to it. And then I like Andrew Garfield's in it, who I love. I think Andrew Garfield is, if anything, now because of his kind of dalliance with uh, comic book movies is a little bit of an underrated actor. And people have forgotten, uh, even though uh, your wife, who usually I agree with, thinks that <laughs> thinks that he is overrated in the social network, which is like one of the craziest things I've ever heard on a podcast because he's the best thing about that movie. So I was really looking forward to him kind of taking on more serious roles. And he started to get back to that a little bit now that he's no longer Spider-Man. So I'm really looking forward to to his performance. And I'm glad uh, Teresa Palmer is getting good roles too. So I'm really looking forward to this movie. Should I be looking forward to this movie, Andrew? Yes, you should be. Uh, very much so. It is a unique war film. It is very unique because um, because of the story that it tells. And we we really haven't seen a war film deal deal with these kinds of things uh, in modern times. I think that, 
you know, I, I, I'm really curious to hear what American audiences think of this because I think, you know, looking back at Fury, for example, a lot of people were like, oh, that's such a gory, violent film. I had a lot of issues with that film. It was, I, I did not like it myself, but there, there didn't really seem to be that much intention in, in showcasing uh, the, the horror of war, specifically with the central characters, in my opinion, at least. I, I have issues when you, you show gore and then, you know, when people die at the end of the film, and I won't spoil Fury for those who haven't seen it, but when people do die at the end of the film and they are named people, you know, it's more like just a squib and they're like, ah, I'm dead. Mm. You know, that kind of thing. Whereas Hacksaw Ridge um, showcases war in a much more impactful and powerful way than I think Fury does. And really, you've chosen a, a perfect film to combine Hacksaw Ridge with. Yeah, there, there you go, patting yourself on the back. <laughs> this is this is an audio podcast, not a video <laughs> podcast. But I just want to say that Dave was just he was breaking just his own arm. Yeah. <laughs> but. You know, and when you see it, you'll understand. But the pacing of Hacksaw Ridge, you know, the the first sort of three quarters of it is not war based, mm. and I think that might take some people to get used to. But um, so yes, be excited. I'm excited to see it again. I'll be seeing it again on Monday night. So you know, I'm I'm genuinely thrilled. It's a it's a really good film. It's a okay. really good film, and. I think it's coming out at the right time for Oscar talk as well. All right. So. Sounds good. All right. Uh, so before you go one more time, tell people how to reach you online. Uh, so you can reach me online. Uh, abfilmreview.com is our website uh, where you can find both shows, AB Film Review and Last New Wave. Um, you can hit us up on Facebook and Twitter, AB Film Review on both of those. Um, we answer it pretty much most of the time. Uh, and that's really about it. Um, alternatively, you can hear me on Pop Culture Case Study every so often talking about stuff. So there you go. Because Dave's dragged me on this, this show for a long, for a few episodes, and I'm very grateful that, you know, you listeners get to hear me ramble on about uh, things like War of the Worlds every so often. <laughs> yeah, and if all goes well, Andrew will not only be back for Hacksaw Ridge, but back for... Uh, a review of one of his favorite movies of all time. So stay tuned to Pop Culture Case Study for that. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. If you'd like to connect with the show, there's a bunch of ways you could do that. Go to Twitter and find me at PC Case Study. I absolutely will respond. Or you can go to followingfilms.com and catch other great movie podcasts like The Best and Worst of the Best and the True Bromance Film Podcast. But if you really want to help me out, you should go to patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy. And there you can actually donate to this show on a per-episode basis. And you can even get some pretty great rewards. If you donate enough, you can actually pick which movie I watch and review on the show. So check that out. And until next time, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Uh, it's also got Joshua Leonard in it, um, who was in Blue Witch Project. So, well, that go. matters. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, ah, oh, now I'm. Now nope, I'm not gonna see it now. Right away. In the fear and the love.